guests on Python, data science, statistics, and machine I'm your host, Thomas Wiki, and today I'm joined by Travis Oliphant, who I consider to be the pioneer of the PyData ecosystem. As the creator of NumPy and founding contributor to SciPy, he laid the foundation that allowed Python to become the lingua franca for data science. Travis is also the founder of Anaconda, which, among many other exciting packages, creates the Anaconda Python distribution, which solves many of the packaging problems that plagued Python for years. Today, Travis is working on Quantsight, a new startup he founded that we discuss in depth on this podcast. It is my pleasure to now bring you Travis Oliphant. I'm very excited to welcome Travis Oliphant to the PyData Deep Dive podcast. Travis, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, Thomas. Thank you so much for inviting me. I want to start us off with just acknowledging your substantial contributions to the PyData ecosystem since really the very early days where uh, you started developing NumPy, which, of course, as everyone knows, is still today the bedrock of like basically all PyData efforts today. And I would be very curious to hear uh, your origin story of like NumPy, like why did you create it uh, and what were the challenges early on? But then also how you think really that helped Python become the lingua franca for data science. Uh, so basically taking us up to the present moment. Um, and then where do you see it today? Where do you see the future and the limitations? Okay. Wow. That's a great softball, Thomas. <laughs> I appreciate that. This is a, definitely a subject of, of passion for me is helping people understand some of where the, the history is and where, because I think it informs where we're heading and some of the actions we should take or maybe not take. Um, now, I think first and foremost, we're in an exciting time. Uh, a lot of people are interested in the algorithms, techniques, approaches of array computing that have been on my mind and minds of thousands of my colleagues for uh, 20 years, and have recently caught the uh, attention of investors and attention of, of larger companies. So it's exciting. But it also, there's a lot of um, opportunity to forget the lessons of the past. So NumPy, really started because I, I started the SciPy project. I came to Python in 1998, and this is sometimes people get, get surprised by this, and they realize that I'm more known for NumPy, but actually SciPy is what drove me. Interesting. Uh, I, as a graduate student at the Mayo Clinic, I was a biomedical researcher. I was studying MRI and ultrasound and doing image processing, large and really three-dimensional, four-dimensional data processing, and wanting to do that in a way that was accessible to others. So when I encountered Python, I realized that this language was something that I made sense to me. I could think of it at a high level and do uh, the kind of analysis that is regularly done in data science today. I could do it there in, in quantitative computing. But it needed a lot of library support. The library support, things for integration, things for uh, image processing, signal processing, uh, just Fourier transforms, linear algebra, random number generation. There's a little bit there, but it wasn't as, as robust. And the reason a little bit was there because of the work of the Python community about four years before I joined. So I joined Python, started using it in 1998 timeframe. About four years earlier, 94, there'd been a, a movement in the Python community to create uh, matrix programming, matrix analysis. And mm -hmm. Conrad Hintz and Paul Dubois and uh, Jim Fulton uh, were all in that group talking about it and others as well. Uh, and then Jim Huguenin spent, has a graduate student at MIT, basically took the ideas that were circulating and wrote something called the Americ. 
and numeric was a an extension of Python. One of the powerful things that mean that uh, enabled Python to become the lingua franca of data of computing, of data science, of array computing, of numerical computing, is the fact that it could be extended. It wasn't here is this uh, language that all of your code will be written in. Here's this language that can glue together the rest of your systems. And it was a very high-level language that was easy to spell, didn't have a lot of syntactic uh, noise, line noise. Mm. Uh, didn't have – so whereas many developers saw the, the spaces instead of braces as a liability early days, uh, researchers like me saw it as a, as a benefit right. because we, are, we, coded our, we coded our code with, without, with spaces instead of braces anyway, and uh, it just looked natural. The braces become line noise. Uh, as you're just trying to understand what you wrote before and what your colleagues have written. So they become line noise to the algorithm. So we could express our algorithms reasonably in Python. And, and so it was it was used to glue together low-level codes in Fortran and C. And because it was extensible, that was, that's what happened. So Jim Huguenin wrote numeric, uh, along with some support from David Asher and Conrad Hinson was extremely valuable. It's really interesting. Today you can do it. You can go back, and I've, I've had um, people that work with me now, the young people, younger people, they come in and they read the history. If they really want to understand, you go back to the mailing list of 94, 95 and start reading the conversations that took place. And it's really fascinating actually, because there's a lot of lessons learned about how did Python evolve? How do programming languages evolve? Uh, Guido in the early days uh, and other Python developers really weren't that aware of the scientific use case, but they were open to the suggestions of scientific users, which is um, not always the case with computer scientists. A lot of times computer scientists dismiss scientific users as you know, things like, oh, complex numbers. Yeah, that's just two doubles. We don't need to provide any language support right. for it. Just make a class. Or they'll, you know, oh, that's just, syntactic sugar is irrelevant because you just call a method. You don't need an, you don't need an in place, op sorry, an infix operator because you have a method call. Yeah. Uh, yes, conceptually, but if it doesn't, but now you're, you're wasting valuable screen real estate that the human mind has to deal with with line noise, basically, instead of useful information that's, that's useful to the person as well as the computer. That happy medium of a, of a language that allows expressivity to the computer while also connecting human uh, mental models is really powerful. And Python has, has you know, been a language that's one of several. Other languages also fit well there. But Python has become so popular with the, with the large ecosystem. And I think numeric and then NumPy was a real reason for it. Uh, so I came to Python and numeric existed. If numeric hadn't existed, I wouldn't have, I likely wouldn't have used Python. So I owe a lot to Jim Huguenin and to Paul Dubois and Conrad Hinson, those early pioneers who basically created numeric. And to numeric, I wanted to add a library of, of routines, integration. So I started SciPy in 98. And early days of 98, 99, I, I didn't work on my PhD. I worked on writing libraries. And I wrote a lot of libraries for integrating with uh, optimization for integration. I, and I needed them for my own research. And so I guess every time I needed something, I'd write it and then connect it. And then eventually that became something called Multipack. I shared Multipack on the net as a web page. Lots of people started to use it. I got uh, someone named Connor, um, Robert Kern, took Multipack and made it accessible to Windows users by making an installer. And I noticed that I got way more usage once that installer was created. Interesting. And that kind of really led me on a path to eventually creating Anaconda because that, that accessibility uh, has many uh, functions. It's accessibility from language. I can see the language. I can understand and make sense of it. But there's also accessibility. Can I install this? Can I use it? Can I get it? 
how hard is it to go from that idea I'm seeing over there to something I can iterate with and manipulate and learn from. And shrinking that process has been uh, a goal for a while now. So that's how that's really what prompted NumPy was because SciPy existed. And so fast forward to 2005, 2001, uh, the folks at the Hubble Space Telescope started to create something called NumArray. And NumArray was trying to fix what they considered to be, and what really were shortcomings to numeric. They needed memory map types. They needed to be able to handle memory maps better. They needed to add strings and do string processing a little bit better. And uh, they needed a better, you know, more types and a better system. Uh, and they, they had several of these key features they wanted. Oh, is, uh, indexing, um, advanced indexing, it's called now, kind of zip, the ability to cross index with, uh, index, um, instead of just indexing with slices, index with actual integer arrays. So you can look into an array and access, instead of just one to five, you could access um, elements that are uh, specified in an integer array. I can access element 1, 10, 16, and 32. Right. Uh, so that capability wasn't there in numeric, and they wanted that in numeric. So numeric started to be written, and, and they had a good team. They built some interesting software. It was starting to work. And then what happened is a library called um, ND Image came out. And I was a biomedical imaging student. I had studied medical segmentation, image, image processing algorithms. I was interested in them. In the process, I'd learned things like morphology, and which I like morphology. It was an interesting technique for computer vision and computer image processing. And I always wanted to have a morphology library in SciPy. And Andy Image was released in 2002, roughly 2003, 2003, I think. And then it had morphology, but it was only written on NumArray. So here I was having promoted SciPy for the past five years, six years, and it was based on numeric. And then there was this um, NumArray had emerged to improve numeric, and it had NumArray, or sorry, it had in the, in the image that worked only on NumArray. Right. And that was, it was pretty frustrating because this was before we had a buffer protocol, before we had array interfaces at all. And so what it meant is that you had to copy your data. If you're sitting with numeric data and then you somebody and then I wanted to use in the image, I had to copy my data to a number image. Yeah. In, in addition to, to all the confusion it creates in the community. Yeah. Yeah. So there was real performance implications, but also then just confusion about cooperation. Like, well, who, who, what do we use? What does it mean to have an array? How do we do this? And there was a lot of confusion. Matplotlib, you know, had a numerics module. There was a lot of confusion. And I saw this emerging, saw this getting worse. And so I, I kind of looked around, well, who's going to fix this? How do we fix this? How do we gather to fix this? One of the challenges with open source, it's really hard to actually fix those kind of issues because it's a sort of a scratch or itch, but one that requires a real investment of time yeah. and, and resources. It's not just something you can do a weekend project and get something going and iterate from there. Uh, there's kind of um, many projects are iterative from a, from a starting point that immediately adds value. But this is a problem where it actually needed to do re reinfrastructure, you're rewriting a bunch of stuff, connecting stuff, and then come out with something that then adopt, a lot of people adopted. That doesn't, that's really hard to do. And uh, uh, so I was a bit naively perhaps, but I, uh, I was teaching university and my, my uh, tenure committee, which I'd had a review three years into my tenure application process, they had basically said, hey, uh, this open source stuff is interesting, but you probably should invest less in it and more in uh, papers and, and funding right. work. And so basically right after I got that review, then uh, I had a class drop and, I, and this NumPy problem, this numeric numeric problem emerged. And I said, and I just felt compelled. I looked around the community and said, well, there's nobody else who will do this. I mean, nobody with the time, nobody with the uh, awareness. 
And I knew how to wrote a program in C. I'd written all the sci-fi code. So I said, I guess it's, I guess I have to do it. If it's going to be done. I care about it. So I did it. And I just basically said, I'm going to do this. And I, and I, I spent four or five months writing NumPy. Um, but not just writing NumPy, but also talking to Guido, talking to Paul Dubois, talking to the community, talking to the NumRay folks and saying, you know, hey, can we, what if I could do this? What if I can pull the features of NumRay into a new thing? And then would you accept that? And they were like, yeah, that'd be great. They didn't believe I could do it. Like nobody believed I could do it. It was pretty. <laughs> so they're like, go ahead, knock yourself out. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> and, and in retrospect, I'm not surprised because it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Now, what they didn't realize is I would had spent a lot of time in the numeric code base. I knew the numeric code base. I'd written a lot of UFUNCs and special. I'd done a lot of perusal. And so I, and I'd written a lot of C code. So I understood Python and how it was, how it was extended. So, but it still stretched me. It stretched me pretty significantly. But I dove in and I just said, well, I've got the guidepost from Numeray. Here are the features people want. Here's the, you know, the code base of numeric. I just, how do I add those features? And I, away I went. And about four months of five months of hard design coding and had a first version. Now that it took another year for that first version to actually uh, get to a point where I could confidently tell people, yeah, rely on NumPy. Right. Right. And I remember that coming out party, it was 2006. So I started in 2005 and 2006 at the SciPy event in Cal, in, in Cal Tech, I basically demonstrated NumPy and it's when, how it worked and how it could be used. And um, I got a standing ovation from that 60 person audience. Wow. Everybody was excited. It was actually one of the one of the most memorable moments of my career actually so far. Even though I've had a lot of impact since then people using it, it was that moment where I realized it was a big deal. That's cuz I didn't really, I mean I I felt it was important but you know kind of as people do it was something I cared about but okay I'll do it but I'm not sure. But I could see so many different people are so grateful that they saw a way forward to build on a common infrastructure. Yeah. That they, they and it was it was useful. Now, my you know, fast forward twelve years later, I look back at what I many things, many decisions I made, things I did, and I wish that I'd had some more senior helping me. Because <laughs> I look at a lot of things that were done, I went, oh, I should have done that a bit differently. Oh, that was a mistake. Oh, we, and a lot of those mistakes are now warts that kind of make the num the current NumPy codebase creak, make the current uh, you know this massive infrastructure on top is it needs some support, needs some help. Yeah. Um, but that was a, I realized that was important. Now my tenure committee did not, they were kind of, they were, um, uh, they were interested. They said, well, a lot of people cared about that, huh? Okay. Well, but we don't know what to make of it. No standing ovations there. No standing ovations there. No. So I went back and they basically said, reapply. We don't think your tenure application. When I, I had to apply for tenure the next year and it didn't go through, uh, they didn't, they didn't fire me, but they said, uh, reapply. And I said, well, at that point, I was already really intrigued by the possibility of. I'd been intrigued by how to how to connect open source ecosystems with uh, with companies and community and and uh, markets. You know, how can we really support this by connecting the op- the action of open source with the engine of of commerce, with the engine of markets? And that'd been a uh, I, I'd looked into that starting since I started writing SciPy. I've been a hobby of mine to read and try to understand economics. So that's what led me when I wrote NumPy to write a book and sell the book and experiment with that. And so I'd kind of already been toying with that. And then when the tenure thing was struggling, I just said, well, you know, this, I, I'm not going to fight this. Let me just go and, and jump uh, into entrepreneurship. But the whole goal, the whole point of starting companies and working in companies was to say, I got to figure out how to keep supporting this, this code, you know, get funding for it, get uh, money to support it. So that was what I've been doing ever since, effectively. Now, with different degrees of success, I would say NumPy, one of the first things that happened in doing consulting around NumPy is it was quickly, it was difficult to both stay 
working on the code and and using the code and, and then running the practice on top of the code. So I was sort of wearing two hats. It was really hard. And so NumPy actually struggled a bit. Now, I'd say in the long run, it probably helped the community because I was I was so involved in writing NumPy that I knew all the code. Nobody else really did. Right. I, I, I it was it was pretty it was a pretty uh, singular effort in a lot of the code base. Now, a lot of people who helped, like Charles Harris, jumped in and wrote ported some important code from NumRay, some uh, interpolation code over to NumPy. Mm-hmm. Robert Kern jumped in and, and wrote the, the first Pyrex, now Cython, uh, st- uh, random number generators. There were a lot of people who wrote things around it. Master Rays, Paul Dubois brought Master Rays. And then uh, importantly, Francesc Alted had a lot of interaction with me in trying to debug the nested D-type. The fact that NumPy had this ability to have structured arrays, arrays that are deeply nested. So you can have a NumPy array of anything, mm-hmm. you know, any object. Um, not quite anything, but a whole lot of different objects. And that really uncovered a lot of potential. That that ultimately, that fact, you could kind of see NumPy as almost a data frame-like thing. But of a, of, you know, it's a, it's a structure of arrays led to people experimenting with that. They would have record arrays and they'd start using record arrays. And that kind of led them, well, this kind of looks like ours data frames, but it had a couple different properties because it was a structure of arrays instead of an uh, array Sorry, it was a, an array of structures. I keep saying it wrong. It was an array of structures. One NumPy array, the elements of which were a structure. Yeah. Whereas data frames are, are uh, there's, a, there's a different kind of approach, which is just have your structure be pointers to different arrays. And that fundamental difference has uh, algorithmic and speed differences, especially if you're appending or adding or adding columns or whatnot. So that, that eventually led to the, the creation of pandas, was was to but it was seeded by these record arrays, which were an innovation in NumPy that were also um, that, that, that were motivated by the rewrite. So um, it, I was really really pleased, even though I kind of had lost my job and was sort of now going off into the into a new world of trying to support my family with consulting in a way I didn't understand. And even though that meant I effectively was pulled back away from working on NumPy full time. I, tr- I was trying to figure out how to create a, create a job where I could work more of my time on NumPy. Or I could, you know, do the, do something that then frees me up to work on NumPy. And it it didn't. It, it was still struggling. I'm still working on that, right? Yeah. And we can talk about the details there. But you know, it, it worked sort of. I it was a lot of nights and weekends, a lot of time still spent on NumPy. Really, for till about 2013, right? So from 2006 to 2013, the next seven years, I did a lot of consulting, a lot of work, and really st- kept a, kept super involved in NumPy. Still involved in NumPy today, but just not as day-to-day involved. I was day-to-day involved there for a long time, but not as much as it needed. So what happened is that kind of that gap meant other people jumped in. There weren't a lot of people, but a few people. Uh, you know, Chuck Harris, Charles Harris, I'll definitely call out. He had, you know, since he added those original features, he's been involved in the code base ever since it came out. So early 2000, late 2005, he jumped in. And he's been there since. And he's been a stalwart member, kind of maintain, maintaining that, that coordination. Because I did it, because I wrote NumPy to support SciPy, and SciPy was basically the test suite of NumPy, and then the, the the documentation I wrote called Guide to NumPy was the documentation. It was kind of it was like documentation driven development. So all the tests were I, I had tests in the in the in the book I wrote, and I had tests in SciPy. So Sci, NumPy itself didn't have a great test suite, and that and a lot of people over time added to that test suite. Uh, I think NumPy is a great example of a project where it takes a lot of work from a few individuals to to create it, but then success comes when uh, dozens to hundreds of other individuals, and then even a thousand, come and add their 
not just their their contributions, but also their usage, their usage. And in the case of NumPy, millions of people using it, providing that feedback and connection to make it make it better. So today, you know, so that kind of where NumPy came from, and uh, hopefully not too long with it, but try to give the context and some of the story because I think it's actually relevant today. I think it's relevant today because we find ourselves in a very similar situation today. Fast forward into 2019, uh, yeah. four, 13 years later. Um, NumPy was held, it was successful, and I remember the day in 2006 that Matplotlib, John Hunter, basically who had written this great thing called Matplotlib, which really brought helped bring a lot of people to Python and the, and the PyData stack because it was uh, now they could plot and it was a familiar plotting mechanism. Uh, I remember the day that he made a hard dependency on NumPy, and that was the day I knew we'd won. <laughs> so I, that was the day I knew that it worked, right? Because previous to that, it was like, well, here's this numerics and and that was the day I knew we'd accomplished the goal. And from then, it just grew. But it did take time to grow. So 2006, it was in. I would say 2009 was when I saw adoption really on NumPy, uh, significant adoption. Uh, in fact, there were still numeric users for 10 years. In fact, a year ago at PyCon, I met a, I met a company that they're still using numeric. It's Whoa. still... Right. So, you know, for surf on their code base, it's kind of the advantage of open source. Like once you make a dependency on open source and you, you manage it, you can use it forever if you want. You just have to, you just might find it difficult to find people to help you maintain it. Right. Um, but nonetheless, it was, uh, it, it was successful. So fast forward today, now it's become the foundation, but it's become, it's kind of pushing more and more down the stack. People, everybody uses it, but you know, over the past three or let's say four or five years, uh, Things like pandas have emerged, which which is more provides more accessibility for data frames, which is a more common data type when you're dealing with with data. So a lot of people come to the to the stack through pandas, and the fact that it uses NumPy, um, at least for now, and it, you know they, there's there's talk of moving the pandas to a different you know, data st- structure, and, and that could happen. Uh, kind of a lot of people are indirect NumPy users, uh, and then things like XArray have come out, um, which add labels and. That's an interesting story, too, because for Pandas and X-Array, in the NumPy community, we've known for a long time we needed these things. We needed labels. We needed an array of a structure, um, sorry, a structure of arrays. Like we need, we've known that for a long time. But we just have not had the ability to, to sort of fund it. We didn't have the, the, um, either the ability to write the grants or the ability to connect to the right people or the ability to get the money. But we've known what to do for a long time. Uh, we just... You know, effectively, because we, we couldn't fund it with the team that had built NumPy, ultimately other people ended up experimenting, building some things, and then getting and then taking off, which is great. That's kind of a that's how open source sometimes works. Is is you which has which has pros and cons, right? And pros and cons is kind of the pro is it's like everybody has a chance to kind of build something new and then to kind of make their make a difference uh, by caring about what they care about, focusing on what they care about, and building something significant. The disadvantage is we often lose coherency. We lose knowledge, we lose understanding, we lose, there's a lot of lessons from NumPy that don't get fixed in Pandas, that don't get fixed in X-Ray um, because they're not, um, we've lost the sort of product coherency in those. And, and then now, today, in today's world where we have a TensorFlow, we have PyTorch, we have MXNet, we have kind of rebuilding of uh, array diff- differentiable array workflows. So there are array workflows and the reason, and these workflows needed uh, GPU support, they needed to be able to automatic differentiation, but they, they they have Python interfaces, but these Python interfaces don't use NumPy. 
they, re, they everyone every one of them are aware of NumPy and NumPy aware and, and maybe use NumPy to build test cases or to connect to the ecosystem, but they basically have built their own stack again. We're basically in a worse situation today than we were in 2004, 2005 with numeric and numeric. We now have so worse and better, I guess. Depends on your point of view. It's 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 right. great in the sense that everybody's here and it's wonderful. Everyone uses the same syntax, uses Python. You can use the same way uh, installation mechanisms, but it's worse in that. Um, I think you you talked to Chris Fonisbeck and I talked to him a year and a half ago at the PyCon, kind of, and he, they were talking about PyMC three. Where's PyMC three going to go? And you're of course very familiar with PyMC PyMC, and it's it's. It's a package I really love. It's a great use case. I'm a real fan of Bayesian analysis, real fan. I used to teach that. It's an, it's an area I care about. Right. And I love that package. And it was based on NumPy. But okay, now we want to work on GPUs. And there was a sense of, uh, and it, it did that by using Theano. Theano was the underlying tool that PyMC used. And when Theano was, I think it's that PyMC3 has now absorbed Theano, basically, if I believe. Yeah, so we uh, continue to support it just to like, support PyMC3. Yeah. Um, but yeah, exactly. So it was like uh, quite impactful when like Theano basically gave up and uh, like abandoned right. the project. Yeah. I think that was a real, it's, it was a real, um, it was a, it was a watershed moment effectively. And then, you know, Chris working on PyMC4, okay, where should, what should PyMC4 use? And I believe they're currently on Edward on the TensorFlow or. Yeah. So currently it's on TensorFlow probability. Probability. Thank you. TensorFlow probability. You know, and understandably, there's a lot of capability over there. I get that. Um, but it, it also means that, you know, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's better today that you can't actually share memory as long as the stacks um, align themselves or so not quite like we were before. I'm really glad that at the same time we fixed the NumPy problem, we also fixed it twice. There's a saying that I use quite a bit in, in my work. You know, if you have a problem, you want to fix the ultimate cause, not just the proximate cause. So fix it twice. Mm -hmm. And in the NumPy case, we fixed it twice too. We fixed the, um, the proximate problem of having you know not too many Ray libraries that downstream authors could use. But then we fixed the underlying problem, which was making sure data structures in Python that, that could share data, could share large data, by creating uh, the buffer protocol. Not creating it, we actually extended it. There was already a buffer protocol, but it wasn't very sophisticated. We brought in the buffer protocol in Python, and that worked. That was the reason I became a Python developer for a while. I actually contributed to the Python code base and got to know the Python core team better at the time and still have friends and connections there because of that work. But but I also left some of it undone. And uh, you know, folks like Stefan Kra and Antoine Petru actually completed the work of the buffer protocol. So PEP 318 uh, was my... I spent a lot of time after writing NumPy and while writing NumPy kind of saying, well, we thought at one point, are we going to get NumPy into Python? And we had that conversation, had it with Guido and Paul. Hey, maybe NumPy should go into Python. We, we, we didn't do that ultimately. We decided instead to make sure the data structure got into Python. And effectively, PEP318 is NumPy's data structure plus a little bit of input from others in the community so that things like the pillow, P-I-L, the, uh, the image processing library, P-I-L, now pillow, Mm -hmm. could actually also be in, in included in that sharing of data data information. So we ended up with ended up spending a lot of time on rewriting the buffer protocol, which is this low-level tool that a lot of people didn't use. And the only thing that it led to in the standard library is the creation of the memory view object. And the memory view object took a while to complete. I would say it really wasn't usable until 2009, 2010. And then because of the work of Antoine Petru and Stefan Kra, who actually took up the the 
soared after I, basically I was doing too much. I couldn't maintain NumPy and contribute there and do everything I wanted to do. Right. So they, they basically cleaned up some of that, some of that, um, what was left. Part of the challenge was memory views are great, but they, as a NumPy user, I didn't need them. I had NumPy. I have a, if I have NumPy installed, they don't really care about memory views. Memory views are kind of a, there's something that if you're a library author and you want to allow the creation of arrays, array data, let's say you're using that, you're writing a database library and you're reading data from seek from some in-memory representation and you want to store it in a way that other libraries can just point to it as opposed to having to copy it. Most of those libraries, their approach was to create a dictionary of lists. Like their records would be a dictionary of lists or now it'd be a dictionary of named tuples, for example. And that's the data structure they would return to Python. Well, that's a lot of box data. Yeah. If you've just got all the data in a record in memory and it's gigabytes of data and you you stream it into a dictionary of lists, you've just copied that data into a way that's not very easy to traverse or do math on. But a memory view gives the opportunity to just construct a data structure that can be understood by anything that reads the memory view. And so math and NumPy could. NumPy reads the memory view. So then you can basically read it to a NumPy array without depending on NumPy. Is what it allows. So it was, it was, uh, it was important, but it hasn't been used as often as much as it could be. And a lot of this is stems from just the challenge of, of the use cases of array computing and data science being understood deeply by the, the web or the system administration community that often dominates the Python ecosystem, the Python developer ecosystem. Right. So, yeah. At any rate, so there's, there's some really deep tech there that I, I really still think about a lot and, and like a lot and think about how to make improvements on a lot. Um, but those kinds of projects can be very difficult to get um, uh, to to promote in kind of an incremental fashion. So, yeah, especially like once the fracturing has happened. Uh, I mean, as you described already um, with, with Numeray and Numeric, uh, it does require like some Herculean effort to like provide something that was like so good yeah, that it was will, like sort of reunite under this new umbrella. Exactly. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was a small community back then, really. I mean, there was probably a thousand numer number number users and probably uh, maybe tens of thousands of number numeric users. And so it was kind of, it was really more of a bringing back a splintering group into the fold. Right. Right. Which is, which is an easier kind of uh, rallying point than just kind of unification, unifying disparate uh, languages. Yeah. So, so today we find ourselves in a situation where we have disparate runtimes. So I don't, I, I don't pretend, I don't think it's possible to actually create one to rule them all. I don't think that's going to be what, what helps us. But I do think there are things we can do to, to help unify and work together better. Right. Yeah, exactly. It feels like uh, that is a benefit, right? That like it's so much is happening so fast with like new interfaces um, and, and new paradigms coming up all the time that uh, it would be a hindrance to try and like constrict that to just like make it fit under one thing but at the same time if we manage to keep talking the interfaces to each other i think uh, we'd all be very well served yeah i agree so that's an opportunity right now and so you know you said this is a deep dive podcast so yes. <laughs> I, hope it's okay. I hope it's okay to I, I do talk about this now and there's a lot of places i'm trying to talk about it more it's kind of hard to convey the challenges because you know a lot of people are even even at PyData Austin, I just gave a talk on on a, on a small little project we've been exploring called URA, which is I would say an ex, it's an experiment, but it's an experiment that has some legs. It's actually been used by SciPy to help provide a, multiple, a realistic multiple dispatch mechanism, mm -hmm. so that you can have different implementations of a common interface. 
in a in an immediate mode. Interesting. And I was trying to I was just showing this this off a bit, and then one of the people came up and kind of they kind of were confused. They they thought I was trying to like I was well now wait I my people are using TensorFlow. You're saying they should use this instead? No 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 no. I'm not saying that actually. <laughs> I'm I'm suggesting that if we have such tools like URay, then then something like Scikit-Learn or or XGBoost or other interfaces can actually write to an array, to a logical array concept as opposed to a specific implementation. And then your runtime could be whatever infrastructure you have. It could be TensorFlow, it could be PyTorch, it could be uh, uh, on-the-fly uh, array concepts, construct, it could be compiled later. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to use computer science, and, and I'm, I'm more knowledgeable today about computer science than I certainly was when I wrote NumPy. And there's a lot of capabilities that can be applied here but it all requires funding. In many cases, I almost wonder sometimes if I shouldn't just go work for Google or Facebook or something and, and have a team that can actually I can actually start to help this work work better. But I, but I'm really a champion, a proponent of what I call community-led open source. Yes. And I really, I really want to see community-led led open source thrive, and not just be sustained, but thrive and be connected to all the opportunities that are out there. And so that's what I keep working on. And so I think that's kind of my calling and my mission is to really connect and enable these activities to happen. Uh, while I care about a few specific technologies, but the bigger mission is how do I help? How do I help use whatever experience I've had and learning I've had to help make it easier for the next group? Yeah, and also just looking at the current state of the PyDead ecosystem, there is this divide between these community-led open source projects and others, uh, which are company-backed and even with yeah. like tremendous amount of resources from these companies, there is like some different flavor uh, about them. And I think it, um, yeah, it, the adoption and so the, the contribution and how deeply it penetrates into the um, PyData world is, is, is different. So, um, and yeah, so for my money, like the community led open source projects are definitely um, where it's more fun to work with. And often I think, these uh, the resulting software often ends up being better. I agree. I think there's there's community led leads to software that people the, the contributors effectively do their best work, and they uh, are willing to do it. They're not they're they're mission oriented instead of mercenary. Now that's yes. not saying that company backed can't also tap into that capability, but it's it's default with community led and with company backed you often get mercenary code developed. And it's, right. it's, it's not mission-driven. We talk about a lot, a lot of this in startup land. So I love startups. I've learned a lot about how to create startups. I'm currently you know, running a venture fund where we invest in startups. And I help people build startups and help them build companies that connect deeply with open source communities. We talk a lot about mission-driven versus mercenary. And in a startup, you need mission-driven. In an open source community, you need mission-driven. Can you say more, more like how we define those terms? Yeah, absolutely. So mission-driven means you're, you're trying to accomplish a goal. You're trying to, you're, you care about what you're delivering. Mercenary is more I'm getting paid. It's my job. And I have other things I really care about. And I'm doing this to get paid, uh, to support what I'm caring about. Now, you know, I said that kind of negative, like, you know, getting paid is important and it's okay to have a job that helps you. But the code, like, I think you can write applications. I think you can, you can stitch together solutions uh, as getting paid to help. And, and they, you can care about those too. But if we're talking about the infrastructure, the tools, the the, the future of, of how we build uh, ideas. And you want mission-driven people. You want people that are just passionate about how, making the world better and making it easier for future people to write code. 
that's what drove me to write NumPy. That's what drove, you know, any good that came out of NumPy came from that center. The challenges in NumPy came from my lack of knowledge, came from my lack of, of having a mentor, having somebody there. I, was a, I wasn't like a, a complete novice. I, I knew C, how to write C code. I knew how to write C extensions, but I didn't know about compilers, didn't know type theory. I didn't know, I didn't have a lot of experience with usage of APIs. Like several mistakes in NumPy. NumPy has an API that's too big. Uh, it's, it's certainly an API that's too big if, if, if people are trying to copy it. You're saying, hey, let's, let's mimic the NumPy API. Well, really, the whole thing? Like it, the NumPy API was a, a superset trying to merge two communities together. So it was already a big API. It wasn't intended to be a tight, you know, how do I make a logical array? And then there's also parts of it that are specific to the NumPy implementation. And you want an API that is able to separate into, well, here's a good array interface. What we mean by an array is this. It comes conceptual. And then how it's implemented, it will have another layer that might talk about the implementation details. But these are all well-known concepts in API design. But I, there was nobody on that early team at NumPy who, who understood that or, or knew that or had the time. Uh, often open source struggles under what I, you know, the tyranny of the available. Community-led open source, I would say, struggles under the tyranny of the available. People who have the time aren't always the people who, who have the best um, awareness of what to do or how to do it. So one thing that we just touched on is the sense of like open source community management. How do we create those communities? How do they thrive? And how do we prevent things like open source contributor burnout and like all these problems that are coming there? Uh, and then, of course, the other aspect is we probably can't rely just on grad students to like do all open source uh, development for uh, right. all the future. So how do we also create sustainable communities and get the right funding in place? I know you did a lot of work with NumFocus there. Um, so there's the um, there's the sort of non-profit route, but then of course there's also the startup route. How do we tie those things together? And I know that you have like a lot of thoughts on those. So I would be really curious to hear uh, what do you have to say? I appreciate that, Thomas. Yes, I do. I have a lot of thoughts on that because it's it has been, the meta problem has been pestering me for 20 years. Uh, when I wrote SciPy, I also knew and I, that I, I wanted to know how I'm going to pay for this. I had three, stu three kids at the time. Uh, they, they weren't going back and they're just going to get older and more expensive, but I loved participating in open source. So how was I going to square that circle or circle that square? Um, so I cared about this a lot. I think there are specific things that, that do work. Let's, let's step back a bit. And, and, and part of the way I've been approaching this recently is by thinking about the, the, the big problem. Um, all software is using open source. Now the official numbers are things like 97% or 99% if you listen to GitHub, but let's just, that's pretty close to all. Yeah. And I think in the future, it will be all. All software uses open source. It makes zero sense for all the software in the world to be using open source components and have those open source components not be funded by, by real, real money. You know, you've got to find a way. We have to find a way to connect real dollars uh, to those, those components. Now, I, I personally am one who I love open source, but I also believe that the world is uh, needs a layer of proprietary software, a layer of software that is not necessarily open source, uh, because it, because it doesn't it's not really it's not really benefited by open source. It's not open source doesn't uh, it doesn't help. It's more using it. It's almost like a, a script that does solves a particular problem for title companies, right? I mean, you could try to build a title company open source project there, and, and I'm certainly open to anybody trying. But I think that ultimately there'll always be a layer on top that is not open source. So 
but that means a couple of things. That layer on top that's not open source also drives a lot of money. Like a lot of money is, is, is earned and made and people sell things and money comes through that layer. A lot of money comes. Some of that needs to come back to support the open source. So we've, we're, I'm working on two initiatives right now. They're long-term initiatives. One is a, is a venture-backed company uh, to solve this, uh, to help with it, let's call it. And the other is more of a, a mission-driven public benefit company that I think gets to the heart of it. Uh, so those are two initiatives that have grown out of Quonsite. Quonsite, my, my new um, startup company that I, I started when leaving Anaconda, is really bringing back the early initiatives that were at Anaconda. Anaconda was an incubation company that did a lot of open source investment and looked for products to build. And then we found one and built that product. And effectively, as we found that product to build at Anaconda and started to grow that company, the the rest of the incubation pieces and the more general purpose mission um, was swallowed. And so to continue that mission of being able to incubate new ideas and keep working on the fundamental problem uh, in, a, in, a, in a broad perspective, we started Quonsite. And out of that has come these two initiatives already. And this is just in a year and a half. And besides also creating an open source research lab. So we're working on multiple, I'm working on multiple directions and not alone. I mean, I can't do this alone. This is, I'm doing this because of the talents of lots of people around me. And I just love finding those people, enabling them, working with them, and trying to solve, work on these problems together. Uh, so I could talk about any of these. So, I'll, and I don't think we'll have time to go into detail on all of them. So, you know, these initiatives are you know, Faro SS, which is a long-term initiative. I probably should come on a later show and talk about that uh, because it's it's really not ready for I'm not I'm not pushing it publicly. I'm pushing it to companies we invest in. So Faro SS, it basically, for every company we invest in at Quantset Initiate, we ask them to put on their cap table, which is their capitalization table of who's the owners of that company are. Mm-hmm. We ask them to put the open source community as one of the owners. Uh, because I fundamentally believe that all companies that effectively use open source to make profit, to make money, to do something in the world, need to bring some of that back to the open source community. And one way to do that is by putting the community as an owner directly. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I don't know if now is the right time, but that, that sounds really interesting. It like spawns many questions there. But uh, so there are a lot you of say more or like move on to the next initiative. I can say more. I mean, the, the challenge, I don't have all the answers, though, questions, but we're starting that, that, that process. So I'd say, you know, over the, I expect that process to take about five years. You know, it's the, to me, this journey, the Faro SS journey is about a five to 10 year journey to get to where I want to be. I want to make open source investable. I want to connect the twenty-one trillion dollars of and more of capital out there that's looking for alpha, looking for gain, and connect it to the innovation center of open source. And I think this is a mechanism to do it if we can create a vehicle and a tether, somewhat of an instrument, a financial instrument that ties the value of companies directly to the open source projects that they rely on. So I think there's a lot that it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of things to do. I'm not ignorant of those things, but that's why I'm not I'm not really ready to not sort of launching that directly. We're, ex- we're experimenting with it with a venture fund and making these agreements with, com- with early startups. Yeah, and we're, we're having success too. We're, we're, we, in fact, the, the, the conversation is not difficult and most are very amenable to it and very open to it. Uh, especially it helps to have a check in hand. You're going to invest right, in it. Exactly, yeah. And um, so what is the carrot for the companies other than like doing the right thing? Like, do they get something more of it? Um, Good question. So it's, it's a lot of us doing the right thing. And at some level, doing the right thing will get you so far. It yeah. really will. But it doesn't get, it doesn't, it's not necessarily as um, carrots are important and incentives are important. 
the other part of the incentive that Faro SS will will grow is having a trademark that it shares with companies that do the right oh, thing. Okay. And then publicizing that trademark to the open source community so that the open source community uh, expects that from the companies they work for. So if all the developers of the world sort of refuse to go work at companies that didn't have the trademark, problem solved. That's brilliant. I really like that. <laughs> so yeah. that's the purpose of Faro SS. I don't have the capital. I mean, if, if I have a partner out there, if there's a capital partner out there that wants to help me build that, I could do it today. But I don't. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, so we're growing that slowly. But I, it's something I care a lot about because I think it's something we can make a big difference in this direction. So that's Faro SS. It's a public benefit corporation, by the way. So the capital partner has to be mission driven, not trying. It's not the intent. It's not going to return value to the venture investor of, of Faro SS. Yeah. It's, it's it's to pay for itself. It's a it's a public benefit corporation. The other one is is Open Teams. Now, Open Teams is investable, and Open Teams is a platform to connect the activity is to amplify the activity that's already happening. Right now, what's happening, just not very efficiently, is there are companies out there who are spending money on open source projects because they want the open source project to move in a direction that helps them. They're building on open source, and it's more efficient for them to have the open source project move a certain direction than for them to rewrite and work around it. Right. And that's happening all the time. We've been doing, I've been doing that for 12 years in various ways. We built JupyterLab that way. We uh, have worked on NumPy that way. We've done work on SciPy and many other projects that way. So the idea of open teams is actually take that nascent market, that tiny market that's actually not very efficient, and make it make a platform that makes it more efficient. Connecting these funding partners that have that are building software, uh, internal software, proprietary software, whatever software for their business, and then they need to depend on open source, but they need open source to make improvements, changes, alterations. And have them work with the community directly, and then the, and they they fund managing partners. And managing partners are companies that hire open source developers and work with them. So Quantsite is an example of a managing partner. Quantsite Labs is a managing managing partner. Kitware could be an example of one. Um, we've I've found five others. You know, John Snow Labs. There's many other people who actually are are effectively call them open source labs, open source development groups. Right. In a way, it's like Airbnb. Let people rent out their rooms to each other. <laughs> uh, this lets companies rent out their open source developers, their developers to other partners who want to fund open source. So it's getting, it's basically saying, look, if all the software in the world is built on open source, there's going to be a demand for being able to do this, these alterations. Now, the third part of that is ensuring that the community led, the community that is that is observing this, it's it that this activity, this um, movement is transparent. This, hey, here's a project we're doing. Here's the change we're going to make. There's a way for the community to participate in that discussion, even if they're in terms of where the project's headed. So it's not just behind closed doors. It's so to make transparent those um, uh, what needs to be transparent about that that relationship between the funder and the managing partner. So right. that's Open Teams, uh, and Open Teams is early stage. We're raising seed money in the in the spring, uh, but you can go today at OpenTeams.com and kind of see how far we've gotten. We're we're you know about. 60% of the way, 70% of the way, maybe to our, our first beta product is currently alpha. Uh, so, uh, but that's, that's, that's something I'm really excited about because yeah. I'm scaling what we've been doing, what I've been doing in an ad hoc fashion for 12 years. Yeah. I, um, I mean, that sounds really exciting because so many other open source contributors I've talked to, they all try to solve the same problem where they all are really passionate about whatever open source project they're working on, and they're just trying to find a way to uh, find a job that gives them enough, like either gives them a company time to work on these things, um, like OneToken does for me, 
or just like a job which gives them enough freedom so that they can dedicate to this like some like academia is like a good thing but it's all just like a, like a means to an end like well i have to eat um but i really want to do this thing which coincidentally is extremely valuable we just haven't like tethered it together like you say um to to where like the money can uh come through to the people actually doing the work but yeah so there is like um the, the the right incentives on both sides and it is really just about connecting that so that yeah that exactly. is really exciting yeah i've been reading a lot about platform revolution and and, the, and these platform companies and how they actually manage to connect these nascent nascent uh markets so we're building a market basically but one that's deeply connected and and has the values of open source communities open source communities yeah so because a lot of ways that could go sour, that could go wrong if you don't have a have a transparency and a, and a feedback mechanism to the open source community itself. So that's why if you go to the platform today, you'll see that we put a lot of time into helping build reputations of individuals, helping them get credit for the work they're doing, uh, making sure that that can maintain with them. They can be like basically have a LinkedIn like profile that's specific to their open source accomplishments, and that actually helps managing partners hire. It helps funding partners know who's who's saying what about the project and where, where the community cares, what they care about. So, you know, that getting that cycle going and that um, there's the work, there's work to do. I mean, like we'll be doing that for the next you know couple of years and improving the, uh, you know, so a lot of the vision of what we have won't be there until, you know, summer or fall of next year, but we're moving this direction. The whole goal is to let open source communities thrive and, if, and, and there's money that's flowing and that's, and so that's a very, direct opportunity i think that we've, we're excited about now in the meantime we're doing this work you know quantsite quantsite labs we do this work today you know whether or not open teams makes it easy for others we do it right. so open you know quantsite labs is a group of open source researchers uh they're tightly connected with quantsite now because we have quantsite labs is next year we're going to have the first year we'll have an actual budget for quantsite labs and people who are, are paid for all by quantsite labs and currently it's all together quantsite's one big family uh, we'll have a separate group that's Quantsite Labs. Then we'll have affiliated Quantsite Labs uh, folks, people that maybe aren't full time on Quantsite Labs, but are eager to spend part of their time. You know, kind of what you said, they'll, their day job works some part time consulting using open source, but they spend 50% of their time working on open source for the labs. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the, we're doing that to get things started. And then the venture fund is really, it's tie, it ties it all together. Um, so for me, it's like, this is, this is my dream. I'm, I'm really excited about what we're doing. Um, and it, it's all from the learning of the past 12 years of jumping into the into, into entrepreneurship and understanding and trying to understand more about how markets work and how businesses work hmm. and, 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 and trying to improve that. So still learning there, a lot to learn, but learn some lessons, certainly doing open source consulting, certainly building a product company, doing venture capital and getting venture capital and, and talking with investors and understanding really just how the nuts and bolts of, of markets work in today's world and connecting that with the nuts and bolts of how communities work uh, that I also, you know, that I actually am passionate about, I care deeply about. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's a, that's kind of where I, I've led from kind of really caring about science to really caring about connecting uh, markets to scientists, just to open source communities. So what else is Quantsite doing in the community? I appreciate that question. Yeah, we, care a lot about the uh, array computing ecosystem and particularly Python. And we are always looking at techniques for uh, the machine learning, for data science, for array computing. Um, we're continuing some of the work that we started Anaconda. So we, we cooperate with Anaconda and care deeply about Numba and Dask and a new project called Intake. We really like that. Um, and then 
the panel. We do a lot of work around panel, which is helps people uh, build UIs from Jupyter Notebooks, uh, which is now works well with Voila, works well with Jupyter Notebook, with Jupyter Widgets. But uh, our initiatives, we have this new thing we've been pushing in Quantsite Labs called our Quantsite Initiatives. Uh, you can actually see a couple of them on openteams.com. If you go to the initiatives site, uh, proposal site, you can see a few of these things we're proposing. Uh, we believe that there needs to be high-level APIs. We need that there needs to be a discussion and a and really a at least an effort that might result in a project or it might result in uh, modifications to existing projects. Uh, we need to have a high-level move to stop depending on an implementation of an array and more on an interface to an array. Uh, that's a long-term, I think it's going to be at least a, a two-year effort, but currently we're out raising money from from companies, from partners. Uh, Intel's already committed. We're in talks with a few other companies um, about how do we help the community rally around interfaces instead of implementations, but then support a wide variety of implementations. Right. Uh, we've been working with PyTorch, uh, Facebook and PyTorch. We're open to working with any of the other stacks that uh, are currently used and really get the community. We've been working closely with um, NumPy community. One of the things I'm thrilled about is that with Quantsite Labs and with Rolf Gomers, who heads up Quantsite Labs with him joining and, and jumping in, we're actually now uh, funding people to work on NumPy. Uh, and that's that's been wonderful. I'm really excited about that. It's one of the uh, it's been it's been a while, uh, and it's been the real purpose of, of of our goal. So you can check out our work. It's it's called Open Tensors. That's just a placeholder. There may never be, and probably will never be, a library called that. It's just simply a a place to talk about this effort to bring to make NumPy higher level. To to uh, but it's not just NumPy. It's it's arrays, data frames, and data types. High level APIs for arrays, data frames, and data type, data types, and and then integrating those with the current community. So that's an effort ongoing, raising money, uh, getting commitments from companies to fund this, and then look for more in Q1 of next year as to the progress. Mm -hmm. Another initiative we just uh, announced at PyData Austin, and we've been working on for a while, is basically a way to help the Python runtime move forward. Uh, for a long time, and, and my relationships with the Python core team, which I really, really value, and, and Many people, anybody who's been there longer than 10 years, I have a really good relationship with. And some of the new folks I'm, I'm meeting and learning about all the time. But I've known about the problem of Python CAPI. The strength of Python is its CAPI, and the weakness of Python is its CAPI, right. which is so often true. Uh, many of us, our strengths become our weaknesses often. Uh, Python's no different. The CAPI is what enabled Python to be extended, as I said earlier. Python became popular in science because it could be extended and glue and help use to glue C, C++, Fortran, everything together. Mm -hmm. Because of its rich C API, now the trouble is we've, we've now used it and now have this enormous uh, stack of tools that are dependent on it. So the problem is now new, new runtimes. Even if the Python runtime wants to improve, we've all seen how the uh, Google and Facebook and Microsoft have invested in the JavaScript runtime and made it very fast. It's actually very difficult to do that in the Python ecosystem because of the broad C API. Yeah. And that's really been PyPy's story. They have PyPy is a beautiful project, but they've really struggled to get all the extensions over because you, you, you can't change the runtime and still keep a dependency on the C API. So the solution, I think, uh, and it's actually staring us in the face, and it's been there for a while, really, uh, as we've seen the success of Cython, people are writing now, and most people, Pandas, for example, uh, was written with Cython. People didn't, don't write C extensions as much as they did anymore. 
certainly when I started, it was all C extensions. Cython emerged the time NumPy was being written and was pretty new then. Now it's pretty mature and a lot of people use it. Cython shows the possibility of writing a higher level language that effectively targets a runtime. Mm -hmm. So you can make extensions in Cython now. The challenge of Cython is it's a superset. It adds these interesting new language features that are like, why did you add? I mean, I could see why they did at the time because it was it made sense. They're adding types to Python and Python didn't really have types. Well, Python has types now, has optional typing. Right. So the opportunity exists to actually create a static subset, the statically typed subset of Python. MyPy actually is this. MyPy C, if you look at that project, they've actually seen the same possibility. You say, well, if we write MyPy and have static types, we can actually compile that. And so the thinking is we need to actually change the, we need to change how Python is extended. We need to change the python.org website. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying where we need to be. And this is going to take five years to get there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's going to happen in, in, a, in a month or two. Yeah. But where we need to go is we need to make it possible and, and really popular. And, and the way you extend Python is you write in a statically typed subset of Python. I'm calling ePython. ePython. And ePython is the name I've been giving to that that effort, and it's and we I see how to do it. We can do it certainly if you just take a Cython extension, translate the syntax to instead of being a superset or you're not Python, change it just one to one to another syntax that is uh, standard Python using decorators, using uh, type annotations. You can do this today, and and likely the addition of a few runtime objects that are, have to be specially defined. Uh, for integrations with with other libraries, but if you do that, then you could write then you could write NumPy in this ePython. You could write every extension in ePython, and now anyone wants to write a new version of Python, PyPy could go. Oh, all we have to support is ePython. Yes, we support ePython in a runtime for that. Then all the extensions work, and same is true for MicroPython, Rust Python, and whatever Python shows up in the web. There's a few now. It's fascinating. Uh, so, but what would be the story for uh, like existing C extensions, like for example, NumPy? You have uh, to port like them. SciPy. You have to port them. Okay. So, yeah. SciPy is easy because it's not there's fewer extensions. So, SciPy actually with F2Py is pretty straightforward. So, part of this, the reason I feel confident we can do this because a lot of extensions are written using Cython and those are easy to port. Uh, F2Py, which is used which is used significantly in SciPy, is all you can target ePython as easy as you target C C API. There's just a few that will require some write, and some of those few are actually it's it's kind of time for a revisit anyway. Yes. Right. So so it's it's um, uh, you know, pandas has a lot of Cython in it already. Uh, a lot of and, and a lot of extensions have also moved towards like TensorFlow, for example, is a lot of C code with Python bindings. Yeah. And so really, this is just a Python binding conversation. PyBind supports ePython, and you've got it there too. Or that's the future. We could make a support. So I'm really confident we could do this with the right budget. And so this fits into the Open Teams mantra. It fits into what Open Teams is trying to accomplish. Let's get uh, a vision initiative out there and then get people to fund it. It's not much money compared to the massive amounts of money that's being invested in tools around Python. And so that's what we're doing. And we're doing that at Quantsight. It's available on Open Teams. You can, you can see a little bit. You know, Open Teams is still um, early. And so the... The proposals aren't uh, as fleshed out as I want them to be in a few months, but you can start to see the beginnings of it. So, but that's something we'll be working on next, you know, next year, the year after that. I mean, these are this is a three-year proposal. ePython is a three-year effort, and what we're doing is rather than we're, we're basically going to the to the community of companies, the industry, and saying let's jointly fund this. 
And our sales team at Quantsite does that. We, we have what's called community work orders. And the, the way it works is, is the proposal's out there, and then each company comes to the table, and then they can basically uh, carve out their specific work order that, that, is, that doesn't alter the direction, but kind of uh, describes the, the reporting deliverables they care about and make sure that they're, they're, the integrations they care about are, are accomplished. Those uh, sound like bright times ahead. I'm really excited for it. I'm excited, I'm excited too. Uh, this is what drives me is, is the possibility. I, I'm not naive to the challenges. I mean, there'll be, but it's also not the only thing that has to, I love the fact that diversity, the real thought diversity that goes into the Python community really thrills me. And it's exciting to learn from all the folks that are there. Yeah, like that has been just incredible to to see like the community grow over the years. And I mean, for you, even even earlier to like this, yeah, like really thriving, vibrant community with all these conferences and meetups happening uh, and so many new people joining and, and putting in hard work. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really um, grateful for everyone involved and really excited about the future of the whole ecosystem. I am, too. And Thomas, it's been exciting. I've really appreciated your efforts on PyMC and your efforts uh, on exposing the values of virtues of Python to the quantitative community, the financial community. And uh, I've been a big fan of yours for a while. So thanks for letting me come on your show. Oh, uh, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your vision with us. If anybody wants to get in touch, I'm on Twitter at, at TEOlephant, Travis at Quantsite.com, uh, and, and LinkedIn as well. I'm happy to connect with folks and talk about these ideas. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I have. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so via my Patreon page, um, TWiki. And you may also follow me on Twitter if you like, where I'm also TWiki. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time.